If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. We're going to do it one more time for good measure. Good morning. Welcome on this third Sunday of Lent to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? Is there anything else on the menu, Holy One? Perhaps some sweet tea? We have had enough of making lemonade out of lemons. At this point, we'd be fine with water. It doesn't even need to be sparkling or flavored. Plain water will do just fine. It's so incredibly dry out here. We know that's what the Israelites said too as they wandered out there in the wilderness. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? And this was just at the beginning of their journey. We're not wandering around in an actual desert, and we're not sure where we are in the scheme of things, but we feel this just as acutely, Holy One. Our enthusiasm has run dry. Some of us feel like we're dragging ourselves out of bed into work and back or to get to the grocery store for just the bare minimum and barely making it. We have been burned by harsh words and assumptions. We are having a hard time imagining how to trust anyone ever again. Parts of our community are scorched, Holy One. It seems as if all the firepower of those in charge has been aimed at those who are just trying to get by. So we lean on prayers that have been tried and found to be true, that you will lead us beside still waters, that you will make our cup overflow, and surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Be with us in the parched places, Holy One. Stay with us as we rest, as we circle back, as we take two steps forward and one step back We pray in the name of Jesus, who offers us living water. 
Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. (laughs) Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but the disciples who were baptized... He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink! His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, the disciples came. They were astonished. Astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Here ends the reading inspired by our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. If you are thinking that the Revised Common Lectionary picked the scripture today, which features a strong female lead, in order to honor Women's History Month, well, bless your heart. The lectionary does not care. This story is in circulation only once during the three-year lectionary cycle, which is a relief to most people in the pews and in the pulpit, because 42 verses, it's a lot of reading out loud, to borrow a line from Jesus, give me a drink. That was a terrible preacher joke, but I had to do it. Traditionally, we don't spend too much time on the four-word phrase that kicks off the longest recorded conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. There are indeed so many other details that vie for our attention. It is actually the conversation that should never have happened. You have likely heard at least one sermon or three on what the multiple, seemingly insurmountable barriers were that should have kept Jesus and this woman from speaking to each other. The woman brings up those barriers herself. The first words out of her mouth are, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Theologian Gail R. O'Day explains that at the time of Jesus, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. The source of the enmity between them was a dispute about the correct location of the cultic place of worship, a problem the Samaritan woman herself puts before Jesus. The woman knows that a Jewish man should not talk with a Samaritan woman. Moreover, a Jew should not consider drinking from a Samaritan vessel. The scandal is also noted by Jesus' disciples when they arrive at the well. They are amazed that Jesus speaks with this woman. The disciples want to ask Jesus why he is speaking with her, but their question remains unvoiced. Their protests reflect traditional cultural and social conventions and expectations, and their protests show their distance from Jesus and his work in the world. 
Jesus, though, breaks open boundaries in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, the boundary between male and female, the boundary between chosen people and rejected people. Of course, we should note that it's not just Jesus breaking open boundaries and borders here. The Samaritan woman's participation is crucial. Otherwise, Jesus is just delivering a monologue. This notion of boundary and border crossing is especially important for us to consider right now, particularly in this moment when people are putting up all kinds of barriers. There is literal barriers, of course. Oklahoma's congressional delegation continues to push for the third century idea of a wall along our southern border instead of comprehensive immigration reform legislation. But there are other boundaries and borders that prevent us from the kind of conversation Jesus and the Samaritan woman had. As Judy Woodruff recently observed, surveys show that more than two-thirds of Americans today view members of the other party as immoral and dishonest. We now see Americans yelling at each other in school board meetings, calling each other out on radio and social media, increasingly socializing only with those they agree with. Or as Louisa May Alcott wrote, many argue, few converse. But there's hope for us right here in this passage, primarily because even though Jesus does a terrible job of starting it, the conversation still ends up being one of the most important recorded in all of scripture. Jesus rolls up and makes a demand of a complete stranger. It's in the text. Give me a drink. There are hundreds, thousands of better ways to start a conversation. I don't think we've met. Tell me about yourself. Do you have any podcasts you'd recommend? Are you a cat person or a dog person? I mean, the possibilities are endless, but the one in whom God was well-pleased chose, give me a drink. If his mother had been around, she would have at least reminded Jesus to add, please, give me a drink, please. It's a miracle the Samaritan woman didn't herself respond with, What's the magic word? <laughs> to be fair to Jesus, though, I, I think he just really did not have it in him. The dude is tired. The text says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, he left Judea and started back to Galilee we get a sense in that line of Jesus' emotional fatigue. The Gospel of John does not record the beheading of John the Baptist, but the synoptic Gospels do. The powers that be will let things go to a point. To paraphrase Banksy, though, most of us are an acceptable level of threat, and if we were not, we would know it. John the Baptist was not an acceptable level of threat. And given that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more disciples than John, they turned up the heat. 
at least enough for Jesus to feel like he needed to get out of town. He had been made aware that he was on their radar, so he was going to make himself scarce. So Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee. This was not a 20-minute drive across town, but a journey that could take more than a week, depending on the route. Jesus chose to go through Samaria, which did help. It is the central and shortest, albeit more dangerous, path, but still it would have taken three days by foot. So now Jesus is tired emotionally and physically. He is very thirsty, so maybe all he could muster was, give me a drink. It is at this point that we usually dial in our focus on those barriers that we talked about earlier. But today I invite us to linger here for a little bit. Give me a drink. I have come to believe it is not a throwaway line, but instead a way of being that we need to pay more attention to. Jesus in this scene does not pretend that he is too tough, too strong, too independent, too self-sufficient to ask for help. Jesus, in other words, is vulnerable. Vulnerable. That is a very bad word in America. Specifically in conservative evangelical circles, it means soft, feminine, weak, a snowflake. As author Kristen Demez explains in her book Jesus and John Wayne, in 2008, the Gaither Vocal Band, a legendary Southern gospel vocal group with roots in the contemporary Christian music scene of the 1980s, released the single Jesus and John Wayne. The song set up a contrast between a mother's gentle faith and a father's toughness, between a cowboy and a saint, and the singer found himself somewhere between the two. True to the Gaither's brand, it was a nostalgic ballad. By that point in time, many of their evangelical fans, for many of their evangelical fans, little separated Jesus from John Wayne, Jesus had become a warrior leader, an ultimate fighter, a knight in shining armor, a William Wallace, a General Patton, a never-say-die kind of guy, a rural laborer with calluses on his hands and muscles on his frame, the sort you'd find hanging out at the NRA convention. This Jesus was over half a century in the making, inspired by images of heroic white manhood, Evangelicals had fashioned a savior who would lead them into the battles of their own choosing. The new rugged Christ transformed Christian manhood and Christianity itself. Weaving together intimate family matters, domestic politics, and a foreign policy agenda, militant masculinity came to reside at the heart of a larger evangelical identity. Vulnerability not allowed. But even those of us who do not think of Jesus as the Rambo of religion do not generally associate Jesus with vulnerability. It is a word even for progressives with deep connections to dependence and need. We prefer to picture Jesus as a human rights activist flipping tables of injustice 
or embarrassing the Pharisees by using logic and reason of first century John Stewart. Some might say it's a stretch to use this one line as proof that Jesus was modeling vulnerability. But it's not just that Jesus admitted that he needed help getting a glass of water that leads to this conclusion. Everything Jesus risks by speaking with this woman, crossing cultural, religious, and social lines, demonstrates his willingness to be vulnerable. This is proved by the fact that the text says the disciples were astonished he was speaking with her. They were so surprised they couldn't even get their questions out. They could not believe what was happening. There was too much at stake. But this is vulnerability, folks. Whether you think Jesus was fully human or fully divine, if he's an actual human, we see a human of the male variety actually asking for what he needs. He cannot make it alone. And for those who believe Jesus was the literal son of God, Jesus shows that even he has to ask for what he needs. He cannot make it alone. Perhaps it would help us all to have a better understanding of vulnerability. Research professor Brene Brown tells us that vulnerability is the emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Through our research and training, we've asked tens of thousands of people to give us, ex us examples of vulnerability from their own lives. And these are a few of the answers that directly pierce the emotion. The first date after my divorce, talking about race with my team, trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage, talking about my feelings, starting my own business, watching my child leave for college, remembering that leaders don't have all the answers but ask important questions, apologizing to a colleague about how I spoke to him in a meeting, sending my son to orchestra practice knowing how badly he wants to make first chair and knowing there's a really good chance he will not make orchestra at all waiting for the doctor to call back, giving and getting feedback, getting back up to bat after striking out. While these, uncomfortable and difficult are, while these are uncomfortable and difficult experiences, Brene continues, there is no evidence that they are indicators of weakness in fact, this is one of the biggest myths of vulnerability. We found that across cultures, most of us were raised to believe that being vulnerable is being weak. This sets up an unresolvable tension for most of us because we were also raised to be brave. There is no courage without vulnerability, though. Courage requires the willingness to lean into uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. In a world where perfectionism, pleasing, and proving are used as armor to protect our egos and our feelings, it takes a lot of courage to show up and be all in when we can't control the outcome. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. Perhaps courage was something Jesus 
was trying to work on. He had, you remember, left town rather quickly when the Pharisees turned up the heat. What we know for sure is that Jesus' vulnerability creates room for the woman to be vulnerable too. And their openness, their joint vulnerability to one another ultimately leads to a meaningful, bigger than both of them conversation. Ultimately, the conversation is about hope for a world where no one is fighting over, whether, or over where to worship or who is the most right and the most holy. Historically, the focus has been to play up the scandal of the woman's multiple husbands, characterizing the Samaritan as a serial divorcee or an unfaithful tramp. But these interpretations stay, stray from the actual story, injecting modern sensibilities and misogynistic assumptions. To start, women couldn't initiate divorce in those days, not to mention the very different customs around widows remarrying into the same family. Neither Jesus nor the gospel writer make a value statement about the five husbands. Scholars have interpreted the woman's husbands symbolically representative of either the five political powers that had ruled Samaria or the five groups that were rumored to have comprised the early Samaritan people. And in this view, Jesus is rehearsing Samaritan history and Jesus tells the woman that soon all people will worship together in spirit and truth. But he couldn't have had that conversation if she hadn't been able to be vulnerable with him, which wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been vulnerable with her to start. This story reminds us that God designed this world to run on benevolent connection. If we thought that tradition, that our tradition of, of praising original sin more than original blessing was a revolution, this is a truly radical idea. The idea of benevolent connection. We are so used to operating on benevolent negligence not really doing anything to actively hurt anyone, but not really doing anything to actively help anyone either. Benevolent connection. As we enter into the third week of Lent, let us consider our vulnerability and what hearts, in addition to our own, that it might open what if we were to ask for what we need and in doing so admit that we cannot make it alone? What conversations might follow? What relationships might change? What hope might be found? There's only one way to know, so be of good courage, friends. Jesus has shown us how. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. 
Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.